Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mayor Greg Fisher podcast. Today, we're going to discuss the transformative role that bourbon has played in our community over the last decade or so. It's been an intentional hospitality strategy to build it around something that's unique, obviously, to Kentucky and Louisville as the epicenter, as Bourbon City. It may be hard to believe, but it wasn't long ago that we didn't have these distillery bourbon experiences here in the great city of Louisville. And today we're home to 10 distillery experiences representing over $260 million of investment in the urban bourbon experience, a citywide trail filled with award-winning micro distilleries, exhibits, and craft cocktail destinations, and it's just growing all the time with popularity. And we recently just had an entire festival around music, food, and bourbon. People came from all over the world, bourbon and beyond, a tremendous success by Danny Wimmer Presents. So an entire economy has sprung up and is supported by bourbon and bourbonism here in Louisville, bringing new investments and jobs and attracting an astounding 19 million visitors to Louisville pre-pandemic, and we're rapidly approaching that number now. And so this wasn't an accident. Uh, over the last 12 years, we've worked intentionally with many businesses and other institutions and partners to make this happen. So today, we're going to talk about the work that's happened and what's ahead. With us are Fred Minnick. Fred is the world's foremost authority on bourbon. And Man. Karen Williams, a longtime leader in Louisville's tourism sector and is responsible really for growing the bourbonism hospitality concept into a word that's now accepted all over the hospitality and tourism industry. So really honored to have both of you here today. Thanks for having me. It's weird to be on this side. Right, right. Know, I'm usually interviewing him. That's right. So. It's well, really a see, pleasure. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> right. So let's start with you, Fred. You've got an interesting story about your journey to become a spirits writer and an mm -hmm. expert. And so tell us a little bit about how you got here. Yeah, so I moved to uh, moved to Louisville after a tour in Iraq to be with uh, the woman who is now my wife and mother of my two children. She's awesome, and um, I was a I was a writer, and I got this job as a food writer, food editor, and I didn't really know a whole lot about covering the food industry, but when you write about food, you eventually write about alcohol. And I started writing about alcohol around 2005, 2006. Uh, but at the same time, I was, you know, like a lot of soldiers coming home, I, I was really struggling. Um, and I had a lot, of, uh, a lot of issues that I knew if I didn't deal with, I'd either end up dead, homeless, um, and most certainly jobless. So I... I left my position at a company called NetWorld Alliance on the east side of Louisville, I think in Anchorage actually, and I started focusing on myself and I basically checked into the Louisville VA and it saved my life. It saved my life in a lot of ways and it also taught me how to enjoy life again. You know, when you go through therapy, any kind of uh, therapy you go through, often you go through like just talking and there's cognitive you know, processing, there's exposure therapy. And then I was introduced to a technique called uh, taste mindfulness. And that was where I basically would focus on what I was tasting. It started with like a barbecue potato chip. I put a barbecue potato chip on my tongue and I would think about it, like how the sugars like separated from the salts and in the areas of the tongue it was populating. Now at this point I had kind of gotten my foot in the door in the bourbon industry as well as uh, I was covering wine. 
And so I was training with like a lot of master sommeliers and a lot of master distillers. And this light bulb went off, this taste mindfulness technique could be used and applied in, in bourbon. And so this, this happened and uh, this light bulb went off around 2009 or 10. And you went to the VA when? <laughs> Uh, 2006 is when, so it took me three years to kind of get past that point of like, you know what, uh, I'm not going to jump off the bridge today. I'm going to live and here we are. I'm going to expand my life. Um, and it was, that was the, that was one of the big moments for me. And that was a time when there was not really anyone covering bourbon. There was some blogs, um, and the, all the whiskey, um, media out there would include scotch and there was only one person really in the world who focused on on bourbon solely in the journalistic side and so i decided to um to really hone in on covering bourbon so i started covering bourbon like a journalist and that was like i would cover lawsuits i would cover um you know, I would reveal people's recipes, like, because this was a time there was no transparency. So this around 2010? Yeah, 2010. There was no transparency in bourbon. Uh, people would not tell you the recipes. And so I would start reporting on that, and that kind of grew my presence in the industry. And the people in the industry loved it. The, the marketers in New York and in London didn't care for that too much, but people in Kentucky loved it. Um, and that's where I kinda, how I kind of grew my name. But the, really the big moment for me, that first big moment for me was when uh, I wrote a book called Whiskey Women. And that was uh, basically telling the stories of all these women who had made an impact in, in bourbon and Irish whiskey and scotch and never got any credit. And so that book came out in 2013 and I'd wrote, I wrote several books since then. Um, but also around that time I interviewed you uh, for all the things that you were starting to do in and bourbon and that was the that was kind of approach I took was that I was looking at bourbon as like um, as a as as something to cover like a sports team um, and when you have books you have to promote the books and so I would do all these events and I'd eventually find myself on stages you know interviewing distillers um, and around that time when I was doing those kinds of things, Danny Wimmer was in the crowd scouting me to help with what would become, you know, bourbon and beyond. But um, that's, uh, you know, now I'd, I've been on Top Chef, uh, a show called Moonshiners. I'm developing my own TV show now. I've got several podcasts. Um, I've, everything I do, I try to sprinkle, I, I try to bring bourbon with me as I'm like interviewing musicians and stuff now. So I'm kind of like, I, I'm so thankful for so many things in in this in this world that I'm lucky to live but um, you know it really does all go back for me to you know getting in the VA and making sure so, I got some so help. let's just go down that road a minute I mean, what would you say I mean there'll be veterans listening to this right now that you know we lose 21 veterans a day or in, in yeah. active military to suicide yeah what would you say to a veteran that's listening to this right now on what your journey was about and what you learned by when you finally said, I gotta go to the VA. Well, we are, you know, when you're in the military, you're taught to be tough and, you know, fight through a lot of things. And that's, that's very important for when you're, especially when you're in combat, you know, you can't, you, you need to have that. Um, 
but when you when you get home and you're out of that out of that presence it's like the world the world didn't stop because we were doing something and it, it was just so hard to, to to grasp that and if you don't if you don't focus on getting yourself to live in this new life I mean, I'm not the same no one's ever the same after being in combat um, but every little everything that like bothers you the irritability the the anger you know that all stems from what we went through that you know we we showed up and we stepped up for our country and you deserve we deserve to live again you know to have a life and um a lot of times you know we we find ourselves um um abusing substances um doing things to keep us from you know numbing the pain or ignoring or avoiding the issues that are, are causing us there and i'll tell you it's hard it is hard to sit down and relive those there relive those moments in therapy um but it's it's you know I, every day i walk downtown louisville i look every time i'm here i look up in the, on the rooftops and i look for snipers it, it's an instinct that I have. It has never got, gone away. The difference between now and 2006 is that I don't crowd in like fear of that. I just look up, keep walking. And like if you can, there's so many things that can keep you from having a life um, in the veteran community. And if you can just work on that and get in there you will find happiness in ways that you could not possibly imagine. And it's, my path was unique. Um, and my wife, my wife is the actual director of mental health for the VA here now. She was not when we were dating, she was in nursing school back then. But, um, you know, she tells people all the time that, you know, you've, we don't tell people in therapy to get into the bourbon industry, yeah. but it, it, the thing, the thing about the bourbon community, we don't talk about like, hey, let's go get drunk. That's not what it's about. It's about appreciating a spirit, um, and it's not about abusing it. And there's also a lot of veterans in the bourbon community, and we support one another, you know, so. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your service as well, and it's been extraordinary to see your development as an entrepreneur, as a former entrepreneur. It's been really fun to see, and of course, it's helped an area that we focused on, you know, which is bourbonism and yep. your description, Karen, his description of the 2010 kind of closed nature of the bourbon industry reflected our experience when we started, or when I yeah. started in office in 2011, when I was running for mayor, I was like, how come we're not supporting uh, bourbon and bourbonism? Because as a business guy, I say, what's your value proposition? In other words, what do you have that nobody else has? that you can provide such a great experience that people are gonna enjoy and pay for it. And so it was really obviously to me, it was bourbon. You know, the joke is 95% of it comes from Kentucky. The other 5% is counterfeit. counterfeit. So why don't we embrace this as a hospitality concept? Because we did not have a hospitality concept as a city year round. You know, we've mm -hmm. got the Derby, these are things. So we pulled all the folks together and Karen, you were there at all those tables. Uh, with the Kentucky Distillery Association, the Louisville Tourism, and the um, Convention Visitors Bureau at that time, there was a lot of tribalism. There was a like, no, I own bourbon. No, I own bourbon. Well, let's get in a fight over who owns bourbon. You know, and I'm the new mayor business guy going, this is like stupid. 
Right. Why don't we all embrace bourbon? Right. We remember those Lots days. Lots of win-wins, and it's going to do nothing but grow and help everybody. So do you, do you, what are your memories of those early days of how we tried to form bourbonism here? It is funny, Mayor, when you say that, because I remember it, it like it was yesterday, and you do too, Fred, as well, because we were at those tables together. And when you say just a decade ago, in so many ways, I think of what we have achieved in a decade, but I also think, you know, the city and community has really gotten together very well. Um, you know, because you're right. I mean, tourism for this community, as you say, 19 million visitors a year is, is huge. Uh, this community lives off of tourism and every city in the world needs a hook. When they're out, they need a hook to say, what is it that makes us stand out? And even though prior to that, and when you came into office, it was one of the things you first said, you know, we were out promoting bourbon, saying we would take a master distiller with us and we would talk about bourbon. And we would liken ourselves to say, you know, Napa Valley has wine, we have bourbon. But not really taking it to the extent of where we are today, or even where we were five years ago. We didn't have, as you said, the 10 bourbon experiences, but we, but we did have that hook. But we had the dream of where we wanted to be, but we couldn't get it together because of all the nuances you pointed out. But bourbon was something that we had, and we had the bourbon distilleries. And that was our hook at that time. So we grew that, and we were bourbon country, as you said. And that in itself had its little arguments yeah. along the way. And we worked with Lexington, and then we worked with um, Bardstown and many of the others. But then, you know, we had our fights along the way. And, and honestly, I remember it's, it, you know, I extended the olive branch to KDA and said, let's, let's work together on this. And as simple as that sounds now, it may have not been as simple then, but it worked. And, you know, when you called me and asked me to do this, I was looking back at some paperwork and I think the proudest moment is when in 2021, I got the Lois Matus Bourbon Award. Yeah. And it just, because I thought, oh my goodness, to get to that point, and that's KDA was nominated me for that. So think about that, to nominate for them to say, you know, Karen and Louisville did that. It was the proudest moment. But this community and really, Mayor, you got us to the table. You know, I, I can't tell you how many crowds I stood in front of when we brought a convention uh, to say 95% of the bourbon or I'd be out in the crowd and I'd say counterfeit. But we had, you know, we had it together. Um, but where we've been in a decade, I mean, it is now more than, it's not bourbon country. We are a bourbon city. We have the urban bourbon trail. It's not about, um, and nothing against Nashville. I was just in Nashville when you say, you know, we never wanted to be in Nashville. You never want to be another city uh, of what they have. Bourbon is classic. Mm -hmm. It's a classic um, nectar. It's it's, but it's more than just the bourbon. It's about, like you said, bourbonism, and in Webster should say Greg Fisher bourbonism. You should you are the doctor of bourbonism. True. It, 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 that's true. I mean, it's about the food. It's about the experience. It's about, 
Danny Wimmer, and there's going to be so many other things that follow because of what you did, you know, bringing us together. Well, and that, the Fred's point, we wanted to make it a five-star experience all along. It's not about coming and getting trash, drinking bourbon. Exactly. But we needed some of these experiences. So the early days weren't that, once we said, look, we're doing this for a good reason. Everybody got on board real Everybody, quick. Everybody, very I, I want to give a shout out to the Evan Williams experience because they were our first our experience very in first. town. Harry Shapiro was kind of his brainchild. Yep. Unfortunately, he's passed. Yeah. And yeah. I can remember the excitement around the grand opening. And, and in the excitement, you know, I talked about how Louisville is the bourbon capital of the world. Well, like my phone started blowing up. I'm, what's going on yeah. here? Uh, Bill Shekels, M Mayor Bill Shekels of Bardstown. He says, how dare you call Louisville the bourbon capital of the world? Bardstown's the bourbon All capital right. of the world. I right. said, well, we'll call ourselves the bourbon epicenter of All the world. I said, well, that's right. fine. That's fine. <laughs> so from that, I said, well, let's do a little Hatfield-McCoy thing between Bardstown and Louisville. And that obviously was just a small step. But this good-natured rivalry we have within the bourbon industry, how the bourbon industry helps each other as oh, well. Oh, absolutely. And what's really neat, Fred, if you talk about this a little bit, is to see new people getting in the game, entrepreneurs, whether it's uh, micro distilleries, whether it's tourism experiences. We're seeing a whole industry now kind of maybe in the second stage, because I think we're still very early with where mm -hmm. bourbonism's going. Yeah, if you, look at, if you look at any like spirits trajectory of um, you know historical data, it's thir they're 30 year stretches, and you know the beginning of what we would say is bourbonism really begins between 2008 2012. So somewhere around then is when we started seeing uh, regular Jim Beam White Label having double digit sales sales growth, and so that's you know but the difference between that historical data and today is that's always just been based on consumption. And today we have the tourism side. And historically, the bourbon industry has always worked together. Um, like if a pipe went out, you know, they would lend a pipe. Or if, if someone's fermenters went down, uh, they would lend their fermenters to help them. You know, the greatest example is when Heaven Hill burned down in 1996, you know, Brown Foreman stepped up and started making their whiskey. Um, you know, that's just, that's how the industry has always been. And now that you see, you see so much new blood coming into the game and they're experiencing that. There are people, you know, going into the liquor store, the people putting that stuff on the shelf, they're competitors, but the people who make it and blend it, that's kind of like family, you know, with the exception of a couple distilleries that don't want to do, have anything to do with anybody. But like, uh, probably the, one of the really good examples I have of this here lately is uh, Ian Summerholder, you know, this big time actor in one of the top mm -hmm. 10 movies of all, or uh, TV shows of all time and in uh, Vampire Diaries. He started a brand called Brothers, um, Brothers Bond with his uh, co-actor, uh, Paul Wesley. And, you know, he's embracing this. He's getting like taught by people in the industry. And it's like, I mean, I'm pretty sure this, he's very close to like just completely leaving his acting career in the rear view mirror and just focusing on bourbon. That's how much fun he's having with it. But one of the things he keeps bringing up is like how everybody in the industry is supportive and helping him. And uh, was like, he's like, you don't see that in Coke and this restaurant industry. He's like, it's only in bourbon. And, and the thing about, you know, the tourism side is that what has always held this from ever being a thing 
uh, has has usually been politicians uh, who want to, you know, who just look at bourbon as an intoxicant, uh, or in the case of like, um, you know, zoning, it's often like a, uh, an explosive as well. Like you know, the Chicago fire was ameliorated because of you know distilleries being nearby, and so like uh, that has always kept. Um, kept people from really looking at it. And the insurance folks uh, have always been like, you know what, maybe we don't have tours at a working distillery because someone will fall in the mash or something like that. Mm-hmm. But people, but the consumers were like, we want to go. And they have been knocking on the doors of these distilleries for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they create the Kentucky Bourbon Trail in the late 1990s. And, you know, the Japanese would fly out here to tour it. It was the Japanese. The Japanese were the first, were the big bourbon drinkers in the 80s and 90s, and they were a big reason why we even have a, a bourbon trail. Mm-hmm. It's because they would just show up at these distilleries and wanted to visit them. And so, like, the we talk about like where are we with this? I mean, I think we have another 20. You know, we can't really use historical data because we have the tourism angle now that we didn't before, what we have is we have a, an actual culture. Mm-hmm. We have a culture of bourbon um, that now, you know, it transcends where, wherever you are and it's actually bringing people together. I mean, one of the greatest examples is what uh, Congressman Yarmouth did with the Bourbon Caucus. That's like the only time those people get along is, right. is at the Bourbon Caucus. Right. Uh, so. You know, bourbon is is so unique and special to to our country. And and if if we didn't have Louisville, the real heartbeat, you know. Well, we decided in our administration to go all in because it was unique to us and it's an area where we could scale. You've got to have a hospitality concept as a city to grow. You know what's interesting is like there were actual distillers who were mayors. Farnsley was a was a distiller and he was a mayor of Louisville in, in 80. You know, so like it, to me, it's it's fascinating that you are the mayor that has this decision, this light bulb moment that to, embraced to do it, it, to embrace mm-hmm. it. When there have been people very tight, close in the bourbon industry, uh, hold this position and not do anything with it. Well, another reason was I saw it as a way to bring the rural area into urban with food and great Kentucky farmers. And, you know, when you go to a restaurant here, people want to see where the food comes from. And you put that together with bourbon and the distillery experiences, and then going out into the countryside, you know, it's a magical time. I just had some friends here for five days and from Austin, and they're like, yeah. this is something special. that is nowhere else in the world like this. So that's why I think we're very early on. So, Karen, tell us, like, what, what would be a typical urbanism experience? If I'm coming here for three or four days to experience this, what should I be doing? Well, you know, Mira, I think that when we decided Louisville, and I think of, of Kentucky, one of the things that we did is that, and you know this, Mayor, when we went to Frankfurt, we had to quit saying Louisville, because sometimes you, you've got to put Louisville aside when you go to Frankfurt. And when I think working with, with KDA, we, would, we were trying to help KDA legislatively get ahead. So Louisville and Lexington and Bardstown, all of that, we were up there talking to the the legislators and everyone saying help us get these laws passed because it helps all of us and that was the first time and what we, kind of laws well went to help sell bourbon 
you know, to help sell bourbon in our communities as that we're now able yeah. to do. Tasting yep. on site. Tasting on site yeah. or to sell Shipping it. bourbon. Right, to ship bourbon. Vintage laws. It's a, they've never yeah. seen that. They've never seen the tourism officials, first of all, coming together and asking that. It was just, mm -hmm. but I called, you know, Eric and said, what is it that we can do to help you? And so then that also goes from an advertising standpoint. And so you say, what can we do? So. It would be like your friends coming from Austin. And I remember working with Garden and Gun, Stacey Yates and I. Now when we bring someone in, it's not just, we want them to come to Louisville and spend the night in Louisville. And we have some of the best restaurants, the culinary chefs here in Louisville, but we want them to come to Louisville and visit our 10 bourbon experiences here in Louisville. And, but we also want them to go to Bardstown. And we also want them to go to Lexington. And we also, and that's what we've, we've done. And I think that that's why this, uh, this spirit, KDA has seen it, and our, um, the legislators have seen it. And it's not just us saying it. Now they've seen this, you know, the spirit pun intended, really, really work. And, and so we've really taken our advertising dollar so much further, but now is it, it's truly an experience. It's coming here in Louisville, landing in Louisville, coming in the airport. I mean, the airport, you look what the, the transformation the airport's done. I mean, Dan's done a fabulous job by making the bourbonism start right there, what he's done at the airport. But you come here, you, you met Julep Tours, what they've done. They're in several of the big, uh, the Omni Hotel. Uh, all the restaurants have taken on the flavor of bourbonism. And then, but we want them not I mean, you know, selfishly, yes, you know, the hotels would say we want them to stay every night, but we really want them to have that bourbon experience and to go on to another part of our state and to enjoy another part of that culture and go on to Lexington or Bardstown or all the beautiful places that we have in this state. Uh, that, in my opinion, will keep bourbon alive yeah. for the many decades to so come. So it took a lot of things coming together to make oh, this happen. Yes. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about our hotels and how, you know, when Omni made the decision to come here, we were looking for somebody to go on that site. And the reason why the city chose Omni was because they were going to create a hotel uniquely around bourbon, a little bit around horses right. that was going to kind of express our hospitality scene. And then the other hotels all contributed as well. But talk about how the hotels come into this play. Well, and again, and we have you to think, I mean, I think about hospitality uh, over the last in the, the hotel package, it, it's, it's a package. And uh, we were flat, you know, we, we, our growth of hotels and our convention center package was flat. Um, we increased our hotel package 50% and Omni really helped us do that and you working with Omni. But Omni needed that hook as well and they saw what we were doing with bourbonism, with you leading and, and we talk about what you did to engage bourbon, bourbonism mayor, but really it's really tourism. Not every mayor and I think you always thought I said that to, and now I'm not the president of tourism, but I think you thought I said that just to blow smoke up but truly, you understood the value of tourism, not just bourbonism, but the value of tourism. And not every mayor understands that, the value of that trickle-down effect of that dollar. But Omni got it, and Omni really embraced it. You go through that hotel, what they did with their bourbon bar, what they've done 
in their rooms. But I think that's why Omni made that decision. And then you've seen how the other hotels, the Marriott, they have a speakeasy that you're invited to that only very few people get the opportunity to go that speakeasy. Every hotel has embraced that bourbonism. Every hotel has embraced the food and the, the recipes that go with bourbonism or the, the, the type of rubs that go with bourbon or the candles that go. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Um, but our hotel package literally went from 3,200 rooms to 6,700 rooms and less than three years. And then we expanded our convention center. So again, I think of a decade of people that were in my shoes running a convention bureau. Sometimes it takes a decade just to look at a master plan. And that was the last thing I did when I walked out, when you said, let's, let's okay, we're here, but what's the next 20 years? And now you have Cleo Battle running the convention center. And because of what we wanted to leave is now there is a food and bourbon group that will always be there talking about the future. Again, not letting it get stagnant, but always looking at the future of bourbon. And I just want to throw it, what is this gets dangerous when we start talking about particular hotels because we leave uh, others uh, there's, out. So, you know, Gold House, over $100 million oh, that they put in there. Exactly. Beautiful thing. A Hotel bar. Distill. Yes. You know, it goes on and on. So, kudos to all of our kudos hotels. I just to want to put that in as part of the package. Absolutely. You know? And then we want one other thing here as we close out, uh, Fred, here, and that's music. You know, we've got, we've got the spirit itself, obviously, hotel lodging, tours, art, music, food. It takes all this to come together. So we wanted to have a bourbon and food festival here in Louisville because there's wine and food everywhere. And when we put out the request, the ideas that came back weren't big enough. And then uh, Danny Wimmer Presents had just finished up year two of Louder Than Life. And, of course, we've been good partners with them. He said, Mary, we want to do something big for bourbon. I'm like, well, you guys are proven performers. What do you have in mind? He said, let us come back with something. So that's what, of course, resulted in Bourbon and Beyond. We just yeah. closed that out. 40,000 people there on Saturday night. Four-day festival, but 40,000 on Saturday to see Pearl Jam, other great bands there. And during that event, we had something fun going on on the side because a couple of years ago when I'm yeah. sitting around with somebody, they order a Manhattan. I said, well, why don't we have a drink called the Louisville? Yeah. <laughs> and I gave you a call. I said, Fred, what do you think? And you're like, well, why haven't we thought about this before? So we had lunch and uh, kicked it around and said, well, you know, Karen Williams would be wonderful to run it. Where'd the idea guys on this? But uh, so talk just a little bit about this and then how we came up with the Louisville cocktail. Yeah. And what do you think about that? And where's that going to take us? So... I'm I'm amazed that it's over. We, we were we were working on it uh, pretty intensely yeah. there for a bit. But uh, the Louisville Cocktail Committee was a volunteer group uh, consisted of myself, uh, Karen, um, your staff specifically Emily, um, and DWP. You know most specifically Doris, mm -hmm. Doris Sims, who is a saint. Um, I love Doris and. Um, and we were trying to, we were, we wanted to have fan voting and we wanted to have professional judges voting. And like, I had never, I've judged a lot of competitions. I own my own spirits competition, uh, the American Spirits Council of Tasters. And I've been on competitions for a couple decades now. And I've never seen one with fan judging and professional judging. 
And then we had this, we, we had a, we had an award. The winner got $15,000. I mean, this is like, this is big leagues in the bartending community. And we were trying to figure out like, how could we make this work and appealing and, and have the distillers engaged. And so we came up with this idea of like the distillers pay an entry fee um, and nominate a bartender to make their cocktail, the Louisville cocktail. It had, it had to have bourbon in it. Kentucky bourbon. Kentucky bourbon in it. And it had to tell the story of Louisville in their own respective way. Of course, you know, the story would be important for now. The, down the road, it won't be as important because it, the story will be at one, the Louisville cocktail contest. And so we had uh, close to two dozen entrants in the, in the first round. We would kind of weeded through and make sure they had the right recipes. And then the next round, um, we had myself as the professional judge, Francesco LaFranconi, who's in the Bartender Hall of Fame, uh, and Bridget Albert, uh, who was Obama's uh, mixologist for his inauguration. And she's, she manages all the education for Southern Glaciers. So we had um, some really high level cocktail judges for that. And then we had the fan voting. And what was, what was interesting is the fan voting was based on the bartender's like uh, story and how they were making the recipes. It was very interesting to see how the fans voted. They seemed to have uh, gone with the people who really focused on the ingredients and the story. And um, they didn't, I mean, they, they didn't pull any punches. The one that had the most votes on the fan side didn't do as well with the professional judges, so it didn't go to the next level. And so the professional judges... Uh, you know, we, we scored on a, on a 100 point score and then we converted the fan voting into a 100 point score and we combined those and the averages and we had, f we had five finalists and we had some pretty stringent rules coming up and I actually thought we were going to have to uh, deduct some points. Yeah, that was tense for a while. <laughs> um, but one of them was like since we had already voted on it, we can't, they, there can't be a substitute of ingredients and two people didn't have the original ingredients. And I was like, well, we got to deduct points. And then out of nowhere, like, we got them. You know, someone came with the ingredients. So I was like, oh, I'm fine with that. And it was, I think, vermouth for one and vermouth, vermouth bitters and for bitters for the yep. other. And it was like, uh, out of oof, nowhere. Out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah that was exhale. So, <laughs> yeah. But them's the rules, yep. you know. Um, and, the, you know, um, the people who would have been judged before could have been like, hey, man, they changed your cocktail up. Anyway. So we, we watched them judge live, or we watched them make the cocktails live. We judged on presentation, um, originality, uh, taste, story, and uh, can it be duplicated? So those were the five things we judged on. The judges were, you know, celebrity chef Chris Santos, uh, Bourbon Hall of Famer and founder of Bourbon Women, Peggy No Stevens, uh, Samara Rivers, the founder of um, Black Bourbon Society, and by the way, she has probably the best barrel pick of a maker's mark ever. She's awesome. Uh, and you and me, we were the, we were the judges. Celebrities. And we, uh, so we, we, we did the taste off and, and we all pretty much had the winner in our top two. So it was, it was. And the winner, S.C. Baker. S.C. Baker. Baker, yeah. Knob Creek From, is what she used in her cocktail. Yeah. Yeah, she used uh, um, Knob Creek, but the thing that I think that really separated her, you know, originality, to me, originality was it, the, the, 
metrics originality are like if it's a spin-off of an old fashioned then it's a spin-off of an old fashioned it's you know you're still giving a note to the old fashioned hers was truly original it used chinar which is an artichoke liqueur and chinar and bourbon are really they really really go well together but not a lot of people use it it's mostly used as an aperitif uh, it's in a few gin cocktails, but a lot of people don't use it. So she used a, a very widely available ingredient um, in that, but it's, it's not used that much. And so, great presentation. Great presentation. It was beautiful, but most importantly, it tasted great. Tasted good and yeah. also had really good ice cubes. You know, <laughs> ice was important. You got, yeah. you know, take away from this. Look, if you're drinking good bourbon, you got to have good, clear ice cubes right otherwise can destroy the whole thing so yeah, that was like a 15 minute lecture oh, yeah chris blanford our one of our biggest sponsors yeah. kroger's he asked you that question mary and you really killed it on ice so. you were uh you know there's a i have a friend. ice is important it is important especially um, drinking a bourbon on the on the rock yes <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, we come a long way with the ice. Maybe we can do another podcast on that. But yeah. as you all can see, we could talk a long time about Absolutely. bourbon yeah. and Louisville here. And I really appreciate you all, Karen and Fred, for yeah. being fellow it travelers on this journey. It's been fun. We've helped a lot of people. It's going to continue to yeah, grow so well. as well. So thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. My Thank pleasure. you. Okay. So for, for those of you all tuning in, you know, encourage you to Visit one of our great local restaurants, have a nice bourbon drink, stay in one of our great hotels, go on a great, go on a great tour, be kind to people, and spread the word about bourbonism. I'm Greg Fisher. Thanks for joining my podcast.